Ezekiel 28 is where we are. So why don't you turn there at this time? Ezekiel chapter 28, what a beautiful summer so far. It's nice weather. It's been great. Ezekiel chapter 28, we looked at on Sunday, the first 19 verses as we were uh, reading about, you know, the destruction of Tyre. Um, And it's been a long kind of dirge about this destruction and what have you. But um, we saw the king of Tyre and the prince of Tyre mentioned, and we saw on Sunday how that really um, sort of uh, pointed us to a picture of what really happened with Lucifer. And, uh, you know, Ezekiel's gaze goes past the man of Tyre and uh, shows us a whole nother part of who the devil is. And we looked at that on Sunday. So if you missed that, if you're wondering, it's part of the through the Bible thing that you get when you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Um, Now, one of the cities I haven't really spent any time mentioning in this particular part of our uh, passage is sort of a sister city of Tyre, and that is the Tyre Zidon. Um, And uh, the the city of of, uh, Sidon, I should say. Um, It's a a city not too far from uh, Beirut. In fact, um, if you go to Beirut uh, there in Lebanon today, uh, you know, Tyre and Sidon are about the same distance from Beirut. And uh, Sidon, as it is today, um, it's the third largest city in all of Lebanon. Um, but this, the last part of chapter 28 is the curse upon uh, Zidon. So far, by the way, if you recall, um, we've been reading the various curses the Lord is gonna you know, pass out to all the nations that are surrounding. We saw the Ammonites in, in um, 25 and um, the Moabites and the Edoms, the Edomites uh, there. And, um, and then chapters 26 through 28 has all been Tyre. Um, and... Uh, it just seems like the Lord uh, really spent some time uh, dealing with the issue of Tyre. We're also gonna see that the Lord is gonna spend a lot of time telling us about the destruction of Egypt. Uh, and uh, this will be kind of interesting, or maybe, maybe not, depends on your perspective. Uh, some people say that the next few chapters that we have are maybe some of the more tedious chapters. You know, uh, it's just kind of this dirge about the destruction of Egypt. But you have to ask, Lord, why are these scriptures here? And why is this part of the Bible, you know, written for all of uh, history to read? And that's what we have to kind of ask the Lord, you know, not just reading a, what a boring section, but to say, Lord, what does this mean to you and me? Now, I gotta say, we gotta get to chapter at least 33 uh, tonight. We have our work cut out for us. And I'll tell you why, because this is, this is brutal. Uh, I'll just say it. Uh, death and destruction, we're, you're, you're kind of like, okay, Lord, I got it. Everybody's gonna die, blood everywhere. Okay, got it. Um, um, and, and, and you're kind of like, man, this is just kind of getting brutal. But there's a reason for all that. But chapter 33 is where things start to pick up because we have some amazing prophecies and kind of the rest of Ezekiel gets really kind of exciting in that sense. Um, so uh, we gotta, gotta kind of do some plowing tonight and get through some of that work. Um, the end of chapter 28, verse 20 is where we are, 2820, and it's the destruction of Sidon. Tyre and Zidon, you'll, you'll see them mentioned, you know, together often when you hear about them in history. Um, you know, uh, Tyre and Zidon go hand in hand. The question you might want to ask is why do the Zidonians get a lesser punishment than the men of Tyre and the king of, of Tyre? Um, let's read and see what their punishment is, then maybe we can make a guess um, as to why God doesn't quite do as brutal destruction 
or judgment on the men of Zidon. Uh, it says here in verse 20, again, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, set thy face against Zidon and prophesy against it and say, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I am against thee, O Zidon, and I will be glorified in the midst of thee. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I shall have executed judgments in her and shall be sanctified in her. For I will send into her pestilence and blood into her streets. And the wounded shall be judged in the midst of her by the sword upon her uh, on every side. And they shall know that I am the Lord. And there shall be no more a pricking briar unto the house of Israel, nor any grieving thorn of all that are round about them that despise them. And they shall know that I am the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord God, when I shall have gathered all the house of Israel from the people among whom they are scattered and shall be sanctified in them in the sight of the heathen, then shall they dwell in their land that I have given to my servant Jacob. And they shall dwell safely therein and shall build houses and plant vineyards. Yea, they shall dwell with confidence when I have executed judgments upon all those that despise them, round about them, and they shall know that I am the Lord, their God. So really, uh, what was the Zidonian city guilty of? Well, it tells us in verse 24, there shall be no more a pricking briar unto the house of Israel or a grieving thorn to all them that are round about them. Um, do you remember what the men of Tyre did to get in such hot water with God where God said, man, I'm gonna scrape you flat where you're no longer gonna be a big civilization and a big city. Um, Zidon is a big city now. Uh, you know, if you go there today, uh, Tyre is just a little fishing village uh, along the shores of the Mediterranean today. It's not a big New York City like it once was. Um, but the Zidonians, they, they were judged by the Lord, but he kind of let them sort of come back and they're still a, a, a thriving city today. By the way, uh, there's a pipeline that goes uh, through Zidon today uh, to the port there on the Mediterranean Sea and oil is shipped from that area of the Middle East uh, out to the other places around the world through the Mediterranean Sea. So Zidon is somewhat of a thriving seaport even to this day. But what the difference was is the attitude toward the Jews. It seems like these were just sort of a, a pricking a nuisance. Like, a, have you ever had a sliver when you're at work and you're just working and all day, you, you can't really see it, but you, you've got the sliver in your, and you feel it in your hand. It's just kind of an irritant. It's not like you're gonna have a heart attack or die or, or anything, but just an annoyance. Uh, well, that's what, that's what the men of Sidon were for the Jews, an annoyance. That's the language here of the pricking uh, thorns and uh, you'll no longer be that to the men of Israel. The, the men of Tyre were rejoicing at the destruction uh, of Jerusalem. And that's why God says, when you are rejoicing about my children's demise, then you've got a problem. Uh, one of the things you have to remember when we talk about these nations is how do you feel, mom and dad, when people treat your kids badly? Uh, man, if you wanna see you know, mama bears come up, just treat her children with disdain and disgust. Uh, or let another kid sort of pick on, your, on her kid. Uh, that doesn't usually work out so well. It's just in our nature to be very protective of our children, even if our children are little rascals. Oh, I know they're you know, misbehaving and little sinners, but you better not mention that about my kid. 
because you know, that, it's, it's like there's a thing. There's a thing there that's kind of real. Well, as it turns out, you know, we're created in God's image. And as it turns out, God has that same defensive heart for his people, the Jews. And so when the men of uh, Tyre were rejoicing at the destruction of Jerusalem, God says, you're toast. Now the Zidonians, they weren't rejoicing as much as they were just a, a thorn in their side, just a little bit of an irritant. And so God says, you're gonna get, you're gonna get thumped too, but not completely wiped out for all time like uh, it was spoken of there. But um, he ends this chapter with kind of this amazing, again, we've heard this before, but this beautiful promise of Israel once again being brought back to life after being scattered all over the world. The diaspora, it's the same thing here. It's a prophecy about God regathering his people. And he says he's gonna make them you know, uh, plant vineyards and they're gonna be dwelling with confidence. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing because uh, even this week we're seeing more uh, confidence in the Jews, even though the world is kind of holding their breath because Benjamin Netanyahu, he's the prime minister of the last 12 years, he's out and there's a new administration, a new Mossad leader. It's, it's a little bit of a questionable time for Israel, but at the same time, Israel's still doing stuff. Um, did you see even uh, you know, today's news and stuff? There's a, there was an attack in Iran, uh, Iran uh, like a cyber attack against these nuclear plants, and it had to do with a drone, uh, this drone that probably was, had a Star of David on it, I don't know. Um, we don't know for sure, but, uh, but it, it's, it's wreaking havoc in Iran and all this nuclear stuff that's going on. And, and even in uh, Iran, there's a lot of things stirring up in the Middle East right now, but Israel is dwelling so safely right now that even some of her former enemies uh, are sort of aligning with Israel. Uh, making you know, the Abraham Accords and deals with Israel because Israel's the only squared away nation around in the Middle East. So the Saudis are talking about peace deals you know, with, with Israel. Um, and uh, you know, we, we've seen several nations sign peace treaties in the last you know, couple of years. And there's more on the horizon probably. It's because Israel's so dialed in right now and they're, they're really dwelling quite safely. They're the safest place to be in the Middle East. When I take our groups to the Middle East and uh, travel, and I've brought groups uh, to Israel, Jordan, Egypt, you know, and that whole region of the world, um, it's always amazing how uh, our group feels like, man, when you're in Israel, it's just like being in America. Maybe you feel safer. You definitely feel safer than being in Portland. Uh, your odds of getting shot in Portland are much higher uh, than if you go to Jerusalem. But, um, but you know, Chicago, uh, what was it? Eight people killed again last weekend, uh, 50 something injured by gunshots in Chicago. Um, you know, Chicago, it makes, I mean, Jerusalem is a peaceful city compared to some of our cities in America. Um, and that's really an amazing thing because a lot of people in the world, they think, well, if you go, you're crazy. Have you ever, those of you that went to Israel with me, some of your friends and family said, you are nuts going to the Middle East, that's crazy. But then when you're there, you're kind of like, uh, no, it's super safe. Um, and it, it's, it is different. You see a kindergarten class on a field trip and, the, and the, there's the kindergarten teacher with an Uzi and, um, and, a, and, and the mom that's there helping, she's got a Tavor, you know, uh, uh, and she's there ready to go. Like they're, they're there because there have been terrorist attacks historically and they're ready to defend their nation. But because of that, you kind of feel safe because there's, there's all kinds of, um, you know, weapons and stuff in Israel. But, but this prophecy of them dwelling peacefully and safely, that's, that's what's happened. Now, if, if, you, if you understand the prophecies of Ezekiel coming up 
in Ezekiel 38, it's during that time where Israel's dwelling peacefully and safely that the invasion of Gog and Magog is gonna happen. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of us believe that everything's set, the stage is perfectly set for the Ezekiel 38 invasion of Israel, which is gonna be the trigger to, to what I believe is gonna be uh, ultimately the rapture of the church and um, you know, the tribulation period. It, everything's re- lined up perfectly for that right now. And that makes it exciting. These are exciting times. But this was a prophecy that was given, you know, thousands of years ago about the regathering of Israel, check. Living peacefully in their houses, check, check. And by the way, it hasn't been until now, really, where you can say that. Israel's never been a safe place, you know, as far as, you know, a place to live for the Jews until recent times. That's, that's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Well, so th- that's the deal. Zidon is also gonna be judged by the Lord. Now, uh, we have chapter 29. The next four chapters are judgment upon Egypt. Um, and if you recall, just a quick relational thing, um, the Jews very pathetically went to Egypt to try to get help from the Babylonian invasion that was pending. They thought, we'll go to Egypt, they will save us. Remember what Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 30? He said, woe unto the rebellious children of Israel who go down to Egypt without taking counsel of me. And he said, you, you align yourself with the Egypt, Egyptians? Good luck with that for the, the people that are chasing you, their horses are gonna be swifter than your horses. And your men are gonna be, you know, their arrows are gonna be more accurate than your arrows. Like the Lord says, you're going down because you're aligning yourself with the Egyptians. Now question, in the Bible typology, what is Egypt a type of, a picture of? The world, it's, a, it's a, all throughout the Bible, worldliness, the people that don't believe in God, but have resources, have power, but it, it's a power and a resource that never is good to tap into. Um, it's interesting to me how the Jews had a propensity to go to Egypt for help, even though they have quite a history there. Um, the history, of course, was, you know, slavery. Joseph was sold as a slave and taken down by the Ishmaelites to Egypt and sold to Potiphar, the Egyptian. Um, but then Joseph you know, rised, uh, would rise up out of the prison to become the second most powerful man in Egypt uh, by the grace of God. And that was nice for Joseph and for his brothers and his father. But shortly thereafter, the pharaohs of Egypt said, these Jews, man, they're getting more powerful than we are. So they chose to turn them into slaves, the Jews in Egypt. And for more than 400 years, the Jews were under the whips of the taskmasters there in, in Egypt. And that's really what the world does. Worldliness and godlessness leads to bondage and slavery. Um, Sin leads to slavery and sorrow. Um, But the Jews, somehow they kind of forgot all the bad stuff. One of the the things that's human nature is to remember the good old days when we were in the world. Some of you might have good old, I remember the parties back in college. It was awesome. The funnels upside down, alcohol. Uh, It was awesome. We had wonderful You forget, you know, uh, waking up the next morning, barfing in the toilet, wondering if you had an STD, uh, like all those things that you forgot about that were miserable and not so good. Um, That's the problem. We, We sort of have fond memories of the glory days, being in the world and worldliness. But we, we forget. Well, the Jews would do that. Remember, they went out of the wilderness and said, oh, we remember how we did eat freely onions, leeks, and melons in Egypt. They were not free. They were slaves. But that's the human memory. We have selective memory. But all that to say, the Jews finally make it to Israel. And, and then there was a propensity for the Jews to go down to Egypt. You know, Abraham went down to Egypt. Isaac went down to Egypt. And that was always a, a total disaster when they did that. 
But in this time, you know, with Jeremiah and Isaiah the prophet and, and now Ezekiel, um, all the prophets said, do not align yourself with Egypt. But over and over they did. Now the Egyptians never would pan out for the Jews to be a good alliance. The, the Egyptians never helped the Jews. Um, if anything, they hurt the Jews. And then when they were supposed to help, they didn't. Um, so the Egyptians were always promising big, but delivering little. And that's what the world does, by the way. Promises big, but delivers little. I hope you understand that. Mom and dad, that's something you need to teach your kids. I'm afraid that our kids don't understand that the world makes big promises, um, but it delivers very, very little, if anything. And uh, we need to be wisening up our kids to know and just see sinful stuff for what it is. And don't just tell them what not to do, tell them why it's not something we wanna do. Uh, there's a why to everything. And a lot of parents, they forget the why part and they just give the what, uh, what not to do. Uh, but this is what the children of Israel, they, they'd go down to Egypt and now God's saying, Egypt, you're toast. And we're gonna spend the next four chapters uh, talking about the demise of Egypt. Um, it says in verse one of chapter 29, in the 10th year, in the 10th month, in the 12th day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me saying, now pause for a second. This is interesting because um, incidentally, I don't know if it's incidentally or not, but um, Ezekiel's prophesying this two days after Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem. So this is coming later. Remember Ezekiel was foretelling the, the invasion of Jerusalem. Now, Two days after Jerusalem's invaded, he starts saying, now thus saith the Lord about Egypt. Um, only two days. Now, by the way, it took seven months for Nebuchadnezzar to uh, totally destroy uh, Jerusalem in 586 BC. So this is, five, this is, this is about 587 uh, when this happens, uh, when this prophecy was given by Ezekiel the prophet. Um, so it's during that time, if you can kind of picture what's going on. Verse two, the Lord said unto him, son of man, set thy face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus saith the Lord God. Behold, I am against thee, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lieth in the midst of his rivers, which hath said, my river is mine own, and I have made it for myself. Um, now, this is, this is uh, by the way, if you're wondering which Pharaoh this is historically, it's, it's Pharaoh Hophri uh, during this time period in history. He's the son, if you recall, of Pharaoh Necho. Does anybody remember Pharaoh Necho? We've talked about him in previous uh, studies. Uh, but this son of Pharaoh Necho is this Pharaoh Hophra. Um, and as it turns out, um, he was a prideful guy who thought he was like a god. Um, did you hear what he said? He said something that you and I have a propensity as people to say. He, 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 says, um, he says, my river is mine own. I have made it for myself. Question, what river is he probably talking about there? The Nile. The Nile is the lifeblood of Egypt. Without the Nile, there'd be no people there because it'd be a horrible, uh, unlivable desert. But that fertile valley area where the Nile River flows, that's the lifeblood of Egypt, and it still is to this day, by the way, um, which is really interesting, but there's some trouble that's coming. We might even talk about that tonight. Um, but all that to say, this, this guy, he, he thinks he made the river. Um, you, now you might say, that's stupid. What a stupid idiot. You know, he made himself, he says, I, I love this river that I have made. You didn't make that river. 
God made that river. And, and we kind of go, that's just dumb. But you know, that's a, that's a human nature thing. Um, if you've said, look at this career that I've built, just as dumb. For you to say, look at this career that I've built, or look at the family that I've raised, or look at all these things that I have done. If, if we have that attitude, we forget that God gave you a brain, God gave you a job, God gave you a place to live. You know, um, I I worry sometimes that we forget that you could have been born in Burkina Faso, Africa. Your soul could have been born as a person living in Tenkudugu. I've been there. It's out in the middle of nowhere, in the desert, in, in Africa. And what's your opportunities for a career there? Well, it's pretty much zip. Zilch, you might be able to find a, a, you know, a mango tree. You can get a stick and hit, hit some fruit off of it. Uh, but that's pretty much all there is to do other than just die of heat and, and thirst. Like it's, it's, it's just, that's why there's you know, millions of people that live in this place in Burkina Faso and there's just no opportunity. And, and, and it's interesting, you know, we all as Americans, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're self-made people, self-made man. And the problem is we didn't make ourselves nor did we plant ourselves here in a place where we have prosperity and, and possibility and future and things to do. Um, we should always, always, always give credit to the Lord for any good thing. And it's by his grace that we have any good thing at all. That's the problem with some of these kings and the Lord says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna judge you for that. Um, can anybody think of another king that did this? Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebi? Look at the hanging gardens here in Babylon that I have built. The funny thing is, he didn't really do the hanging. It was his father who built the hanging gardens. He was just walking around going, look what I have built. And he said, look at this beautiful city that I have made in Babylon. And Daniel came and said, Nebi, you gotta not think yourself so pridefully. You know, you gotta, you gotta humble yourself and break off your sins. And he said, yeah, whatever. And he kept walking around going, look at my wonderful city. And the Lord says, okay. And he made Nebuchadnezzar into like a cow. He started to grow like feathers on his arm and he had long fingernails and he was scratching like a cow or, you know, like a hoof on, on the, in the grass. And he was out chewing the cud with cows for seven years. Can you imagine? You're a Babylonian and you're, you know, riding on your donkey and you see the king out there. Like you had to just watch this. There's our king chewing his cut out there with the cows. Uh, man, woo he was He used to be an amazing king. Um, well, his, his senses came back to him after seven years. And he, and he made this statement, those who walk in pride, God is able to abase. That's, that's the last thing we hear Nebuchadnezzar say in his life before he dies. Um, those who walk in pride, the Lord, Jehovah, God of Israel is able to abase. That's what this Pharaoh's got to learn. He thinks he made the Nile River because uh, he probably thought he was God like a lot of the Pharaohs. And it's, that's the problem. You and I think we've done stuff, but man, we've done nothing. The Lord is the one who gave you lungs and the, you know, the ability to breathe and without even thinking about it. Like it's the Lord who gave you that. Um, it's the Lord who gave you a mind and, and feet and hands. Just don't forget that it's the Lord who does all things. And we need to give him credit for all things. But he says, look at this river I've made for myself. Now, by the way, um, you know, many of us have tried to search this and find the dragon. Did you see the word dragon in verse three? Are we talking about Satan? And it's easy to get excited about that. Oh, maybe there's another picture of Satan. But as scholars have kind of worked on this, nobody really sees it in the rest of the chapter. And here's why. 
The word dragon is probably best translated as crocodile. Um, that's, that's the problem. Because we know the dragon is Satan, according to the book of Revelation. But um, this is probably an unfortunate King James translation of, of this word dragon. Um, some newer translations say sea monster, <laughs> which if you think, if you big enough crocodile, uh, you might call him a sea monster. Um, but, but that's probably what we're talking about, the crocs of Egypt there near the Nile River. Um, and he's being sort of compared to a crocodile, sort of like Captain Hook in Peter Pan or whatever. Uh, just picture the clock and the, the, the crocodile. That, that's sort of what's going on here. The Lord's saying, uh, you know, he's gonna compare this to this crocodile king or pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh Hophra. So he, he says, you're like the dragon that lies in the midst of the river, the crocodile there. Um, verse four but I will put hooks in thy jaws and I will cause the fish of thy rivers to stick into thy scales and I will bring thee up out of the midst of the, thy rivers and all the fish of thy rivers shall stick to thy scales. And I will leave thee thrown into the wilderness. The word wilderness there is probably better translated in the middle of the desert. Thee and all the fish of thy rivers, thou shalt fall upon the open fields, thou shalt not be brought together nor gathered. I have given thee for meat to the beasts of the field and to the fowls of heaven. And all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord because they have been a staff or a reed to the house of Israel. So this is a, a strange King James way of saying, and, and really it's hard, it's hard to translate this. Um, even your newer translations sort of struggle with this one. But basically if you could picture the Lord saying, I'm gonna put a hook in the crocodile's mouth and I'm gonna pull him out of the river and the, all the fish of the river are gonna be sort of attached to the crocodile and I'm gonna drag all the life of the river, the fish of the crocodile, and put them in the middle of the, middle of the desert. How do fish do lying in the middle of a desert? Um, they become flesh for birds to pick off uh, and eat uh, the, you know, and die there. That's the, that's the imagery you're supposed to see. A crocodile with no water, with a bunch of fish laying around dying and stinking in the desert. That's the imagery. Um, and uh, he says, you know, you, that you'll know that I am the Lord. Verse six says, because they have been a staff or a reed to the house of Israel. Now this reed is kind of an interesting sort of um, reference because a reed is not a good staff. A reed is, you know, the little reed that grows in the swamp. Uh, do you want to use that as a walking stick? No, it's unstable and, and it's breakable. It, does, it doesn't make for a good staff to lean upon. And that's the imagery that the Lord is conjuring up here. He wants us to see the Jews seeing Egypt and it's sort of a reed. And as they leaned on it, it went plink and it broke. Um, in fact, there's even images in the Bible where they leaned on the reed and it poked through their hand. <laughs> it wasn't a good thing to lean on. Um, that's, that's Egypt here. Um, so this is the reed of Egypt to the house of Israel, that, that makes a weak staff. Um, by the way, when we lean on the world, we, when we put our trust in the, in the world, just keep that mental imagery. This is the biblical me mental imagery, that when you're leaning on a reed and it breaks, that's the world. You put your trust in the world. And, and there's so many things people put their trust in other than the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong, the Lord uses things in the world um, but, but sometimes it's when we put our trust in the world and without the Lord, it becomes like a reed. I think psychology is one of those things. Um, psychology has a certain strength, but it's a reed. 
Um, and I'm sorry if you're, you're a psychology major or if you have a degree, don't come and send me letters. I've, I've only got a thousand of them from people who've got graduated with a psychology degree. But truthfully, psychology has some great stuff, but it also has a lot of wacko stuff. And what you have to do is sort of sort through psychology and say, what's true in the Bible and what's true in psychology? And there's, there are some things that match up and man, those are useful. I love our Christian, you know, uh, counselors and people that have, have a biblical background because that's, that's not just a read that someone's leaning on. But if you're leaning on Freudian psychology, you're on a read and it breaks. And that's why so many people end up coming to churches after they've spent all their insurance money on their psychologist or psychiatrist because uh, there, there's a real weakness to that whole discipline. And, and I find that the church is, is in modern times, it's almost like they've replaced biblical truth with, with psychology. And people get into that stuff. And, and I think we have to be really careful. That's just one example. I could go into uh, hundreds of other examples of things that the world throws out there and says, we know more than what the Bible knows, or we know more than what God tells us uh, is true in the scriptures. And we should be careful about that. Um, you know, about how to raise kids. We know that spanking your children is harmful to your children. We know that that's abusive. We know, they know nothing. Um, how's that worked out for us? Um, you know, of course, spanking your children abusively is wrong every time. Um, and that's the problem. You know, the world acts like it's all bad and says all of biblical spanking that the Bible talks about. But if you read your Bible, it's, it's a very loving and caring thing that a parent does. And the Bible puts it this way. If you spare the rod, you actually hate your son. That's what the Bible says. Well, Brett, that sounds really antiquated. Who cares? Uh, this new stuff is not working so well, is it? Um, this, we think we know so much, but we know nothing. Uh, and the more we find out how much we don't know, the more you should kind of go back and say, wow, it's amazing how much the Lord got it right because he's 100% accurate. But I could go on and on. Be careful. Don't lean on the world. It's just a read. It's going to snap and you're going to lean on it like the Jews did. And it says it's a staff or a reed to the house of Israel. Well, verse seven, when they took hold of thee by the hand, that is break and rend all their shoulder. That's the breaking of the reed. And rend all their shoulder. And when they leaned upon thee, thou breakest and made all their loins to be at a stand. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will bring a sword upon thee and cut off man and beast out of thee. And the land of Egypt shall be desolate and waste and they shall know that I am the Lord because he hath said, the river is mine, I have made it. That's the reason. The Pharaoh said, hey, this river's mine, I made this river, so the Lord says, all the fish are gonna die in your river, and I'm gonna show that you have no control over your river, let alone you didn't make it. Um, the Lord's gonna show that. Now, he's gonna destroy cat, uh, a man and beast. Um, what's interesting about that, the Egyptians worshiped man and beast. Um, many of their gods uh, and goddesses and what have you were all uh, linked to the animal kingdom. Um, do you remember the, the, the plagues of Egypt? The funniest thing about that is if you actually study all those plagues, the Egyptians worshiped all those things, frogs, flies, lice. Um, they were all part of the, um, the worshiping uh, system of Egyptians. And so the very things they worshiped, God says, oh, you like frogs? Here, I'll give you lots of frogs. And the frogs were so piled up that they, they, they'd squish between their toes as they were walking down the, the street. And, and it says it got, there were so many piled up frogs that the whole land began to stink of dead frogs. So they're kind of like man. Um, amazing that 
Pharaoh finally brought Moses in and said, okay, pray to your God and get rid of these frogs. And Moses said, when would you like me to pray? Tomorrow. That amazes me. If I were for I said, tonight, right now, this very minute, pray that they're gone. But one more night with the frogs. That's what Pharaoh wanted. That's, that's human nature right there. One more night with the stench. One more night with the sin. With, that's not real repentance, is it? Um, but all that to say, um, the Lord sort of hits Egypt right where they worship, both in the plagues of Egypt, but also here when he takes out man and beast and the river itself. Um, it's all part of the Egyptian worship system. Verse 10, behold, therefore I am against thee and against thy rivers. I will make the land of Egypt utterly waste and desolate from the tower of Syene, even to the border of Ethiopia. Now pause for a second. Like the prophecy of Damascus, is this one that is yet to happen? Some people might ask this right now. Uh, Brad, I've never heard of Egypt really being desolate where no man or beast ever lived again. Like this destruction, is this something in the future? Well, you might think that initially, but wait just a second, keep reading. Um, he says, um, no foot, verse 11, of man shall pass through this land, nor foot of beast shall pass through it, neither shall it be inhabited 40 years. And I will make the land of Egypt desolate in the midst of the countries that are desolate and her cities among the cities that are laid waste shall be desolate 40 years. And I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and will disperse them through the countries. Yet thus saith the Lord God, at the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the people whither they were scattered and I will bring again the captivity of Egypt and will cause them to return into the land of, the, of, of Pathros, into the land of their, inhabit, their habitation and they shall be there a base kingdom. And it shall be basest of all kingdoms, neither shall it exalt itself any more above the nations for I will diminish them that they shall no more rule over the nations. And that it shall be no more the confidence of the house of Israel, which bringeth their iniquity to remembrance when they shall look after them, but they shall know that I am the Lord God. This is fascinating. I wish we had time to go over just some of the longer history about the Egyptians and the Israelis. Um, but as it turns out, the Lord did just this. When did Egypt become desolate? When Babylon finally came and knocked on the door of Egypt. When the Babylonians came and thumped on Egypt for 40 years, it was really uninhabited. It would be actually Cyrus. The Medes and the Persians would come later. It would be during the reign of Cyrus that Cyrus would release some of the Egyptians in very much a similar fashion as the, he would release the Jews. To go back to Jerusalem, he, Cyrus would also release Egyptians to go back to Egypt and they'd become a nation, but never the greatness that they once were uh, in, in, from that day forward. And to this day, Egypt has never been something that Israel leans on. Uh, they've had to fight Egyptians. Uh, there's some major wars that have happened between Israel and Egypt. But Israel's never asked Egypt to really be much of a help to them. It's funny though, because Israel and Egypt have had relative peace between each other, uh, even recently, in recent decades, which is kind of amazing. Um, but, but Israel doesn't trust Egypt. Israel doesn't lean on Egypt, just like the Bible says. So there's some amazing prophecies that have been long-term fulfilled, even in these last verses that we just have looked at here. Um, so verse 16 is kind of, it'll no more be the confidence of the house of Israel. Israel putting their confidence in Egypt like they once did. So verse 17, it came to pass in the seven and 20th year in the first month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to serve a great service against Tyrus. Every head was made bald, every shoulder was peeled, and had no wages for his army, for Tyrus, the service that he had served against it. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon, and he shall take her multitude and take her spoil and take her prey. And it shall be that the wages for his army, I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor, wherewith he has served against it, because they wrought for me, saith the Lord God. In that day, I will cause the horn of the house of Israel to bud forth, and I will give thee the opening of the mouth in the midst of them, and they shall know that I am Lord. It's funny, after the curses, there's always a last verse in these chapters saying, but I'm gonna bless Israel someday. Like, did you see that? Verse, uh, verse 26 of chapter 28, they shall dwell safely in their houses and build it. The, the Jews are coming back. The Lord is always saying, I'm gonna destroy you, but don't forget, I'm gonna restore Israel. It's a promise that's over and over in the Bible. And he does that also in verse 21. What's this whole thing about Nebuchadnezzar versus Nebuchadnezzar? I've mentioned it before, but the truth is um, I'm saying it wrong to begin with. Um, you'd probably think I was weird if I tried to uh, uh, say it the way they, they would say it back then. But the Nebuchadnezzar is the Chaldean way of saying it. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar would be sort of the Hebrew way of saying it, but, or spelling it, I should say. But the way you would actually say it is sort of uh, a, a whole nother way. You'd say Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> you guys ready? Did you hear that? Nebuchadnezzar. You gotta get the in there um, to get the, I can't even really do it right. Nebuchadnezzar is the way you'd say it. It's like a zeh. Um, so if you want to say it right, you, you can be really weird. Um, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, there you go. Okay, so we'll say Nebuchadnezzar just for ease. But that's the, don't be freaked out about the two spellings. Uh, the conspiracy theories are, are not worth any, any work at all. Just the Chaldean way of spelling it versus the Hebrew way of saying it. Um, now, uh, the next chapter, verse 30, continues, but this is about the destruction of Egypt specifically. Um, it says in verse uh, one, the word of the Lord came again unto me saying, son of man, prophesy and say, thus saith the Lord God, how will ye woe worth the day? For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near, a cloudy day shall be the time of the heathen. Interesting language. And whenever you see that word day of the Lord, it should raise your attention because the day of the Lord is a very specific time. And what we need to do is look for, why is this phrase, the, the day of the Lord, um, speaking about end times? All throughout the Bible, it, it's linked to the end times. Isaiah 13, verses six and nine, sort of defines the day of the Lord as the end times, the last days. Joel, chapter one through three, talks about the day of the Lord. Zephaniah 1, 7, uh, Zechariah 14, 1, all speak of the day of the Lord as at the end of the time. So you, it makes you wonder, what's the, what's the point of this day of the Lord being mentioned here in the destruction of, of Egypt. Um, well, let's kind of just keep our eyes open and see what happens here. Verse four, it says, and the sword shall come upon Egypt and great pain shall be in Ethiopia when the slain shall fall in Egypt. They shall take away her multitude and her foundations shall be broken down. Ethiopia and Libya and Lydia and all mingled people and Chub, <laughs> the men of the land that is in league shall fall with them by the sword. 
Thus saith the Lord, they also that uphold Egypt shall fall and the pride of her power shall come down. Mark that, that's, that's always a part of this uh, destruction of, of these nations is the pride. We talked about that a little bit on Sunday, but pride, pride, pride. It's always uh, the reason why these nations go down. Um, so the pride from her power shall come down from the tower of Syene shall they fall in it by the sword, saith the Lord God. And they shall be desolate in the midst of the countries that are desolate and her cities shall be in the midst of cities that are wasted. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I have set a fire in Egypt and when all her helpers shall be destroyed. In that day shall messengers go forth from me into, in ships to make the careless Ethiopians afraid and great pain shall come upon them as in the day of Egypt for lo, it cometh. Thus saith the Lord God, I will also make the multitude of Egypt to cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he and his people with him, the terrible of the nations shall be brought to destroy the land and they shall draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. And I will make the rivers dry and sell the land into the hand of the wicked. And I will make the land waste and all that is therein by the hand of strangers, I, the Lord, have spoken it. Interesting here, talking about the river of Egypt being dry. Um, until the Aswan Dam was built, uh, which was finished uh, right around 1970, 1971, um, the Nile River was very unpredictable and, and it constantly was flooding and wiping out you know, Egypt. And it was constantly going, getting through times of drought. And the Aswan Dam has sort of regulated uh, the flow of that river, uh, they've been able to store up a little more water. So they haven't had the drying problem as much as they once did, but there were times where the Nile River uh, historically, not in modern times, actually dried up. Um, and this is probably one of those times uh, where Babylon, become, or Babylon wipes out Egypt and then the river dries up and then that just seals the deal. Nobody can live there because it's too much desert. But that's all part of this curse upon Egypt. Verse 13, thus saith the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols. I will cause their images to cease out of Naph. And there shall be no more a prince of the land of Egypt. And I will put a fear in the land of Egypt. And I will make Pathros, um, which is an upper Egypt. Um, I will make Pathros desolate. And I will set fire in Zoan. Uh, another name, by the way, for Goshen. Remember where the Jews were kept when they were enslaved. Um, and I will execute judgments in no. Um, and I will pour my fury upon you know, sin. What are these things? Uh, these are cities named sin and no. Uh, there was a city named sin and no. No? Yeah, sin. Uh, it's confusing. But I will set fire, verse 16, in Egypt and, and uh, sin shall have great pain and no shall be rent asunder and Noph shall have distresses daily. The young men of Avon, and of Pespitet uh, shall fall by the sword um, and these, these uh, cities shall go into captivity. At Tehoth Nihes, uh, there will be a test after this for all these names. Um, uh, by the way, Tehoth Nihes is the same place, uh, Teophanes, uh, where the Jews went uh, when they dragged Nehemiah. Remember that whole story where they dragged Nehemiah down to Egypt at the end of the story? Uh, not Nehemiah, Jeremiah. Did I say Nehemiah? Jeremiah. Yeah, they dragged Jeremiah down to Theophanes. Same, same place, by the way, just different spelling. 
Also, verse 18, the day shall be darkened when I shall break there the yokes of Egypt and the pomp of her strength shall cease in her, uh, uh, of her strength. And, um, and for her, a cloud shall cover her and her daughters shall go into captivity. Thus will I execute judgments in Egypt and they shall know that I am the Lord. Uh, interesting imagery here of the days being darkened and stuff like that. We don't really know what that really means. We know that it was darkened during the plagues of Egypt um, for, for days. Um, but do you ever wonder, like, um, what did the ancient people think of like a total, you know, eclipse? Um, remember the one we had you know, a few years back? Uh, that was pretty amazing to see, you know, uh, just total darkness in the middle of a nice sunny day. Uh, and I remember how the temperature dropped suddenly and dogs were barking and yeah, it was just kind of amazing uh, watching that. Well, can you imagine if you didn't know your science or whatever and you're out there and you're already, things are kind of bad and you're being attacked by uh, the Babylonians and all of a sudden the sun just goes away in the middle of the day and it's suddenly a little chill in the air. And um, that, you know, that, that could be what's being talked about here. The day uh, shall be darkened. Could have been just by the smoke of war though as well. Um, you guys remember the smoke we had last summer that darkened, uh, you know, the day. Could have just been that, the destruction and the fires and all that. We don't know for sure. But the point is, the Lord says, I will be known because Egypt's going down. Verse 20, it came to pass in the 11th year, in the first month, in the seventh day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and lo, it shall not be bound up to be healed, to put a roller to bind it, to make it, a strong, uh, make it strong to hold the sword. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and will break his arms, the strong and that which was broken, and I will cause the sword to fall out of his hand. Um, this is all imagery. The arm was a symbol of strength and power. You know, it talks about the arm of the Lord or you know, who will stay my arm, some of the kings would say. Well, Pharaoh thought he was pretty strong, but both arms would be broken, never to be repaired. That's what the Lord's saying. And his sword's gonna fall out of his hand. He won't have a, a, a chance against the Babylonians. Verse 23, I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations. I will disperse them through the countries and I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand. But I will break Pharaoh's arms he shall groan before him with the groanings of a deadly wounded man. But I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, the arms of Pharaoh shall fall down and they shall know that I am the Lord when I shall put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall stretch it out upon the land of Egypt. And I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the countries and they shall know that I am the Lord." This phrase at the end, have you noticed we've been saying that a lot tonight? 54 times in the book of Ezekiel, he says, and they shall know that I am the Lord or Jehovah. One of the reasons all this wrath, judgment and destruction is coming is that the Lord says, they're gonna know that I am the Lord, that I am the true and living God. And you say, well, Brad, I don't care about all this old bloodshed from the Old Testament. And who cares about Egypt and Zidon and the Ammonites and the Moabites and the parasites and the flashlights. I don't care about any of them. Um, you might say, whatever. But the truth is um, the world is gonna know. Like this should be a reminder to you and to me that, and they shall know that I am Jehovah. Uh, they meaning fill in the blank. 
Kay Brown. She shall know. Nancy Pelosi, she shall know. Donald Trump, he will know. Me, Pastor Brett, I will know. Uh, like there's gonna come a day where all the world, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And everybody's gonna end up saying, whether they want to or not, they're gonna have to admit, righteous and true are his judgments. And that's the point we see this, is God's just gonna do his perfect will upon these rebellious nations. And that's what we're seeing, that they shall know that I am Jehovah, the true and living God. Well, now chapter 31 speaks you know, specifically of Pharaoh's downfall. Um, it says in verse one, it came to pass in the 11th year, in the third month, in the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, speak unto the Pharaoh, uh, king of Egypt and to his multitude, whom art thou like in thy greatness? Um, well, now he's gonna, he's gonna tell us. He's gonna compare Pharaoh to this, uh, uh, whether it's a mythical person or a real person, but it's a, ancient, it's a person who's already long gone. He's called the Assyrian. The Lord is gonna say, you're like the Assyrian. Um, now, you gotta remember, over 100 years earlier, the Assyrians were the powerful uh, army. The Babylonians were just kind of an up and coming power, but the Assyrians were the ones that were famous uh, as the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And they had beautiful, glorious cities and their kings were impressive. And they were maybe arguably some of the most intimidating people in the world's history. The Assyrians were the ones that were known for just killing people and stacking up skulls outside their cities just to make sure that if you came to like Nineveh, you'd see this huge mountain of skulls and you'd realize, oh, those are the enemies of Assyrians. They, the Assyrians would torture people, their enemies. They'd, they'd take captives home just to torture them brutally. They would skin people alive as long as they could keep people alive, they would, they would do that. And then they would use the people's skins to cover their furniture in their city. That's a true story. Uh-oh. Is that my alarm of things I'm not supposed to say? <laughs> About the skinning of people alive? Um, yeah, that happened. Um, they literally made lampshade type things, like, like uh, these covers over their lamps, their, their little lamps, out of human skins, out of their enemies. Like horrible, horrible things the Assyrians did. But they also had a massive, the city of Nineveh, remember Jonah was spoken of, he, he, it took him three days to go from one side of the city of Nineveh to the other. Like in Bible times, cities were tiny usually. We think of these giant cities, they were tiny, most of them. Nineveh, Assyria was uh, a giant, wealthy, powerful city. And so it's almost like, uh, you know, the, the, the Egyptians had become sort of the replacement of the glorious Assyrian, you know? And so um, it's almost like the Lord's gonna say, you think you're big stuff, Pharaoh? Well, you're like the Assyrian who was glorious in his day. And the Egyptians would have known uh, the glory that's being referred to. It's almost like this will be sort of an idiom or comparison, the Assyrian and Pharaoh. That's what the Lord's gonna do. So, whom art thou like in thy greatness? Verse two, verse three, behold the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches and with a shadowing shroud uh, and of uh, a high stature. His top was among the thick boughs. The waters made him great. The deep set him up on high with her rivers running round about his plants and sent out her little rivers unto all the trees of the field. 
Therefore, his height was exalted above all the trees of the field and his boughs were multiplied and his branches became long because of the multitude of waters when he shot forth. All the fowls of heaven made their nest on his boughs and under his branches did all the beasts of the field bring forth their young and under his shadow dwelt all the great nations. Now, you Bible people that have studied your Bible, this imagery is not unusual. Uh, in the Bible, great stature and power often is compared to tree, a tree or a cedar of Lebanon kind of thing. Do you guys remember Nebuchadnezzar also had a dream about a tree? That he was a great tree. We're just like this, like verse six, the fowls of heaven came and landed on its branches and the beasts came and stood under the shade of this giant tree that was Nebuchadnezzar. Do you guys remember this? What happened to that tree, anybody? Organ loggers came and cut it down. Seriously, it was cut down into a stump. And that was the point. You're, you think you're a great mighty tree. And Nebuchadnezzar was, was toast. This Assyrian is being compared to that same kind of imagery, greatness of a, of a mighty cedar, a tree where the nations of the world benefited from the Egyptian, which is being compared to the Assyrian. Verse seven, thus was he fair in his greatness in the length of his branches for his root was by great waters. The cedar in the garden of God could not hide him. The fir trees were not like his boughs and the chestnut trees were not like his branches nor any tree in the garden of God was like unto him in his beauty. I have made him fair by the multitude of his branches so that all the trees of Eden that were in the garden of God envied him. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast lifted up thyself in height and hast shot up his top among the thick boughs and his heart is lifted up in his height. Uh-oh, remember what that phrase means. What does it mean when your heart is lifted up? Anybody? Pride, verse 11, I have therefore delivered him in the hand of the mighty one of the heathen. He shall surely deal with him. I have driven him out for his wickedness. And strangers, the terrible of the nations have cut him off and have left him upon the mountains. And in all the valleys, his branches are fallen, his boughs are broken by the, all the rivers of the land. And all the people of the earth are gone down from his shadow and have left him. Upon his ruin shall all the fowls of heaven remain and all the beasts of the field shall be upon his branches to the end that none of all the trees by the waters exalt themselves for their height, neither shoot up their top among the thick boughs, neither their trees stand up in their height and all that drink water for they are all delivered unto death to the nether parts of the earth in the midst of the children of men with them that are down, go down to the pit. What's the nether part of the earth and down to the pit, anybody? You might just say hell. Um, uh, remember, we did, we did a teaching on hell uh, a year or so ago, and we talked about the various locations people call hell, but really aren't hell. There's Hades and Sheol. There's the Gehenna, Lake of Fire. There's the Abuso we talked about last Sunday. People get them all confused. But this is probably uh, more of that Sheol, Hades kind of place that we're talking about, that they're gonna end up in what we would call hell uh, in the Abraham's bosom, the bad part. Do you guys remember that whole study we did? Well, that's, that's where these guys are all gonna go, these kings, to basically to hell. Down to the pit, verse 15. Thus saith the Lord God in the day when he went down to the grave, I caused a mourning. I covered the, the deep for him and I restrained the f uh, floods thereof 
and the great waters were stayed and I caused Lebanon to mourn for him and all the trees of the field fainted for him. I made the nations to shake at the sound of his fall when I cast him down to hell with them that descend into the pit and all the trees of Eden, the choice and the best of Lebanon, all that drink water shall be comforted in the nether parts of the earth. Um, when they all went down into the hell with him unto them that be slain with the sword and they all that went, uh, were in his arm that dwelt under his shadow in the midst of the, uh, the heathen. To whom, art, to whom art thou thus like? You're like the Assyrian who's going to hell. And the glory and in the greatness among the trees of Eden, yet shalt thou be brought down with the trees of Eden to the nether parts of the earth. Thou shalt lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with them that is slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, saith the Lord God. Wow. So we learned about an Assyrian that doesn't exist and he's basically going to hell, so is Pharaoh. Is that what we're supposed to get for this chapter? Pretty much. There is perhaps something that I do wanna give you an attention, a uh, little, little attention to, and that is the Assyrian is an interesting thing to bring up because did you know one of the more remote names of the coming Antichrist is the Assyrian? Um, so some you know, scholars look at this and think maybe this is sort of a description of, uh, you know, it's like, it's like Ezekiel saying, you know, Pharaoh, you're a bad dude, but you're, you're like a picture of the Assyrian who's glorious, powerful, all the nations will follow, but eventually they're all going to hell. Um, and really this description does in fact fit what's gonna happen to this coming world leader called Antichrist, uh, son of perdition, he's a man of sin. Uh, there's a bunch of titles for the Antichrist that's coming. Um, but one of those titles in the Bible is the Assyrian. So some see the parallel here of what's gonna happen. And if you look at this, what happens to this great tree, the Assyrian, and how he's cut down and thrown to hell, that's what's gonna happen. We read about that last Sunday, didn't we? That the, the, the dragon, which is Satan, the beast, which is Antichrist, and the false prophet will all end up in Gehenna at the end of the story, uh, which is the lake of fire, which we call hell. It's the eternal place called hell. So you can read into that a little bit and some would suggest that this is sort of giving us a uh, heads up, maybe a little bit of a dual fulfillment of prophecy from Ezekiel talking about Pharaoh's destruction, but also tying in the destruction of the Antichrist. Ultimately, the Lord Jesus himself will come and wipe out that coming world leader at the end of the tribulation period. So um, some see the correlation there in chapter 31. But chapter 32, let's, let's, uh, let's finish up. I know this one is a little longer, but uh, we gotta get to at least chapter 33. We'll, we'll try to finish there. So we set ourselves up, uh, unless you want more blood and guts next week. Uh, let's get all the blood and guts done tonight. Uh, ripping the bandage off right now. Um, so this is uh, Pharaoh's dirge, sort of the funeral procession. It says, and it came to pass in the tw uh, 12th year, in the 12th month, in the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, take up a, lam a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say unto him, thou art like a young lion of the nations, and thou art as a, a whale in the seas. And thou art, uh, pardon me, and thou camest forth with thy rivers and troublest the waters with thy feet and fouls their rivers. Thus saith the Lord God, I will therefore spread out my net over thee with a company of many people 
and they shall bring thee up in my net. Then will I leave thee upon the land, I will cast thee forth upon the open field, and I will cause all the fowls of heaven to remain upon thee, and I will fill the beasts of the whole earth with thee. Um, by the way, do you remember we covered this in chapter 29, the crocodile being left out in the desert? Same, same thing, uh, kind of a repeat of that. Verse five. And I will lay thy flesh upon the mountains and fill thy valleys with thy height. I will also water with thy blood the land wherein thou swimmest, even to the mountains and the rivers shall be full of thee. And when I shall put thee out, I will cover the heaven and make the stars thereof dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give her light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over thee and set darkness upon thy land, saith the Lord God. I will also vex the hearts of many people when I shall bring thy destruction among the nations into the countries which thou hast not known. Yea, I will make many people amazed at thee and their kings shall be horribly afraid for thee when I shall brandish my sword before them and they shall tremble at every moment, every man for his own life in the day of thy fall. For thus saith the Lord, uh, the Lord God, Jehovah, the, the sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon thee. By the swords of the mighty will I cause thy multitude to fall, the terrible of thy nations, all of them, and they shall spoil the pomp of Egypt and all the multitudes thereof shall be destroyed. I will destroy also all the beasts thereof from the beside of the great waters. Neither shall the foot of man trouble them any more, nor the hooves of beasts trouble them, trouble the waters. Why? Because the water's gonna dry up. We, we talked about that in a previous section there. Then verse 14, will I make their waters deep and cause their rivers to run like oil, saith the Lord God. When I shall make the land of Egypt desolate and the country shall be destitute of what, uh, of that, whereof it was full, when I shall smite all them that dwell therein, then shall they know that I am the Lord. This is the lamentation wherewith they shall lament her. The daughters of the nations shall lament her. They shall lament for her, even for Egypt, for all her multitude, saith the Lord God. It came to pass in the twelfth uh, year, in the fifteenth day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, wail for the multitude of Egypt and cast them down, even her and the daughters of the famous nations unto the nether parts of the earth with them that go down to the pit. Now pause just for a second here. Isn't it interesting that the Lord says, I'm gonna put a chapter in the Bible of lamentation for the destruction of Egypt. And the thing that we kind of wanna sort of grab from this is realize that the Lord's saying wail for her lament over her. The implication is, do you think the Lord delights in destroying the wicked? When I read the Bible, I get a sense that the Lord, he's the one who laments and he's telling everyone else, lament. This is a lamentation that Egypt that was so glorious and so beautiful, had everything going for her, was so godless and so worldly that it's ended up in total destruction. And this really goes throughout the Bible. God never seems to relish or love destroying the evil, but it seems to break his heart. You know, you hear the Lord in the book of Deuteronomy, oh, that there would be a heart in them to keep my commandments and my statutes and my judgments. And you can just hear him hurting as the Jews were rebelling against the Lord. And then even in the New Testament, the Lord says, oh, I would that none should perish, 
but that everyone would come to repentance. You get a sense on this lamentation here in this chapter, chapter 31, or 32, pardon me, you see him saying lament over her. Uh, and then he's telling everybody to wail, uh, you know, and because um, these people are going to hell. That's the idea. The nether parts of the earth, verse 18. But he goes on in verse 19, whom dost thou pass in beauty? Go down and be thou laid with the uncircumcised. They shall fall in the midst of them that are slain by the sword. She is delivered to the sword. Draw her and all her multitudes. The strong among the mighty shall speak to him out of the midst of hell with them that help him. They are gone down. They lie uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Asher, which is another way of saying Assyria, is there and all of her company. Who else is in hell? The Assyrians. His graves are um, about him. All of them slain, fallen by the sword, whose graves are set in the sides of the pit and her company is round about the, her grave. All of them slain, fallen by the sword, which caused terror in the land of the living. There is Elam and all her multitude round about her grave. All of them. So the Elamites were in hell. <laughs> we're, we're learning who's in hell right now. Um, all of them round about her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, which are gone down, uncircumcised in the nether parts of the earth, which caused their terror in the land of the living. Yet have they borne their shame with them that go down to the pit. They have set her a bed in the midst of the slain with all her multitude, her graves round about him, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword, though their terror was caused in the land of the living yet they have borne their shame with them that go down to the pit. He is put in the midst of them that be slain. There is Meshach and Tubal and her multitude uh, and her graves round about him, all them of uncircumcised slain by the sword, though they had caused their terror in the land of the living. In other words, these are the bad nations. We're gonna learn more about Meshach and Tubal um, coming up in Ezekiel 38, because they're gonna be a major player in some future prophecies. Verse 27, they shall not uh, lie with the mighty that are fallen in the uncircumcised, which are gone down to hell their weapon, with their weapons of war. Um, they have laid their swords under their heads, but their iniquities shall be upon their bones, though they were the terror of the mighty in the land of the living. Yea, thou shalt be broken in the midst of the uncircumcised and shall lie with them that are slain with the sword. Verse 29, there is Edom, her kings, all her princes with their might are laid by them which were slain by the sword. They shall lie with them, the uncircumcised, uh, with them that go down to the pit. Implication, by the way, who are, who are the uncircumcised? Well, the answer is anyone who's not a Jew, uh, pretty much. That's who we're calling the uncircumcised. Circumcision is of the Jews. And so it's interesting that the Jews are not numbered of those who would be going down to the pit. And, um, and it has to do with the fact that they're God's chosen people. Um, and that's kind of important to know this. So these are the uncircumcised Gentile nations being referred to here. Um, verse 30, these be the princes of the north, all of them that are the Zidonians, which are gone down with the slain. With their terror, they are ashamed of their might and they lie uncircumcised with them that are slain by the sword that bear their shame with them that go down to the pit. Pharaoh shall see them and shall be comforted over all his multitude, even Pharaoh and his army slain by the sword of the Lord their God. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm done, that's our, that's our cue. Uh, 
Well, there it is. Um, did, I, did I finish all that? 31, I skipped a verse? 32. That alarm threw me off. For I have caused my terror in the land of the living, and he shall uh, be laid in the midst of the uncircumcised with them that are slain with a sword, even Pharaoh and all his multitudes, saith the Lord God. There we go. Chapter 33, next week. Uh, now this is a, uh, you might say, Brett, this is a heavy section of doom and gloom. Um, but if you have any further insights that you might wanna share, uh, you, can, you, that, you can email me that, uh, I'd be interested. Uh, I was, I was, the other day I was listening, I thought, man, these are kind of dry passages. I thought, I wonder what old Chuck Smith said about chapters 30, 31, 32. So I went and listened to his teaching and, and he got on the, on the, on the he said, I was preparing for this sermon in chapter 30, 31, and 32 of Ezekiel. And he says, I have nothing to say about this. <laughs> and then he said, I was on my way to a pastor's conference where uh, Gail Irwin was with him and a couple other pastors. And he said, he told, Chuck said, um, uh, can you guys read chapter 31, 32 of Ezekiel and let me know if there's anything that like stands out that, you know, and they, the, the two pastors read and they said, no, nope, we don't have anything for you. <laughs> Uh, so he just, Chuck said, so that's 31 and 32. Let's go to chapter 33. That's kind of the way he handled it. So uh, it, is, it is funny how there's certain passages you kind of go, man, what's the point? But I think maybe when, part of the point is to wear us out purposefully. Um, because, you know, it's hard to put yourself in the sandals of these people who are fighting against the Lord and ended up going to hell. But you might say, Brad, it's, it's like, you know, it's like painful just reading this stuff and it's kind of this dirge of depression. But we, we, we must remember that's where prideful nations go. That's where the prideful end up. Like the, this is here for a reason that should remind us, Ugh, we don't wanna be like these nations. We wanna humble ourselves. The whole prideful thing is such a theme here. And uh, we have to really be careful. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. But those who walk in pride, he is able to abase. And you know, over and over again, the Lord is talking about those people who wanna get credit for themselves, you know? There's whole stories in the Bible where, you know, the Lord wanted to make sure men didn't get, remember the story of Gideon? Where he had the huge army show up and then they drank water and you know, just a small remnant of those guys end up showing, and even the guys that were lapping up like a dog, not the guys that were skilled taking water in there. And just this tiny group of guys, the Lord says, I wanna show that I can save by many or by few. The whole story of Gideon. After Gideon won that battle with just a, you know, just a tiny little group of guys against a massive Midianite army, um, do you remember what they wanted to do with Gideon? They wanted to make him, you're gonna be our king. You're amazing, look at this battle. And that was the whole point. God says, I don't wanna make people think that man has all that power. Uh, but they even missed it with Gideon. Like it's an amazing story. And all throughout the Bible, this whole thing of men taking the credit for great things. I made this river, I made the city, I made my career. I'm a self-made, I'm a prideful American. We have to be careful not to have that sort of national attitude that these people had or personal attitudes of pride um, we need to be humble and understand that, man, I'm a wretched, miserable sinner who God, God's been gracious to. He's been kind and he's given me so much. And it really is the Lord. I see this temptation in people personally, nations nationally, churches corporately, pastors about their ministry and being prideful about, you know, how many listeners and all that stuff. Like, you know, it's a pitfall to start, you know, being, you know, look at me, look at, the, no, 
we have to understand any good thing that's happening at Athe Creek, for sure, is the Lord saying, I can use a weak and foolish guy to, to be a mouth and say a few things. But man, I, I love that the Lord uses weak and foolish things. It's the, the, pit, the pitfall is when we, any of us, start taking credit for anything. Big goof. I see that in ministries. And you know what's really sad? Is when I see that in ministries, it seems like it's not long thereafter the ministry folds or the pastor fails or something else happens. It happens all the time. Uh, God forbid that we be walking in pride. These dirges of chapters should be reminders. Don't, don't be like these people. May the Lord give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And uh, we do thank you. Even these chapters of the destruction of Egypt and the pharaohs and, and all this, Lord, we, we see it as just a good reminder um, to be humble before you, to know that you are God. Lord, I pray that we would know it's you who gives us any good thing to enjoy. All good things come from the Father of, of lights. Lord, we're thankful that you give us every good and perfect gift. Um, Lord, we know we don't deserve any good thing, but you've been so gracious to give us all things that we need. Lord, and you keep us alive, you keep us healthy and strong. Lord, we, we don't deserve any of that. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised, even like Peter talked about, we shouldn't think it's strange when fiery trials come our way, because that's just the normal way things go. So we're just thankful when any good thing happens, Lord, we, we just give you glory. You deserve all the honor. Give us the right mentality in this stuff, Lord. And as we continue studying Ezekiel, give us understanding and application, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.